this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Welcome, listeners, to another episode, the last one of the year of Ready for Close-Up. And as usual, talking about movies and all, this time about the year 2022, I'm here with Andy. Hi there, Andy. Hi, Sam. Now that 2022 is coming to an end and winding down also in a cinematic way, I wanted to ask you, Andy, what kind of a movie year 2022 did you have? How would you characterize it and summarize it? For our listeners. I guess that's an interesting one because I think also now reflecting back on the year that was and in preparation of this episode, I was trying to come up with a list of movies that I watched exclusively in the cinema. Yeah, looking at, at this list, I have to say it's it was more of a mediocre year, I would say. I think there were a lot of mediocre movies, sequels, remakes that are just yeah, not really. They were popcorn fare, but it wasn't really that interesting, innovative, entertaining. It was just very, yeah, middle of the road in a way. And there were also a few movies where there was a lot of hype around it. I'm thinking of the Don't Worry Darling vehicle, for example, that was, mm. was came in with huge fanfare and all this drama behind the scenes. And then the movie itself was just not living up to that in any sense and also the can winner of this year triangle of sadness i think for me personally was rather disappointing also didn't live up to what i was hoping it would be so for me i would say there was it was a, a mediocre year with mediocre movies and a few highlights in between I can definitely agree with that. I was trying to scratch together a top 10 list <laughs> for this year. And you know how it is. If you don't get to 10 and then towards the end, you have to squeeze in the ones that you actually didn't want to put on the list, then that's not the sign of a great year. And I think obviously there were a couple that were hyped a lot that I knew I wouldn't probably like as much. I'm not a superhero kind of guy. Um, so Thor, Love and Thunder was a huge disappointment, I thought, to me. Black Adam that I went to see kind of reluctantly had a bit more to, to tell in terms of a story, but was also really not my thing. So I, I just got by and, and managed to uh, put together that list. And even the last one on the list, which is The Menu, was a movie that I actually didn't like. It, it had a, an interesting premise and I went to see it with relatively high expectations, great cast, Anna Taylor-Joy and Ralph Fiennes were, were good, I thought, and Nicholas Holt as well. But apart from that, I really felt in the middle of the movie, I, I lost interest. And I came out of the movie thinking, well, that's a shame because it had so much potential. And I feel a lot of these movies had a lot of potential and didn't quite live up to it. So they were kind of trailer movies. Mm -hmm. And I think the best example is one that we talked about over the past few weeks repeatedly, which is Avatar 2 which you really don't have to see. The trailer is enough and uh, everything else. <laughs> you just don't want to waste the time to go see the actual movie. So I feel that's a little bit of a theme this year. A lot of good plot lines, potentially good plot lines. Expectations were high. But then once you were in the cinema, you thought, oh, well, you know, I could spend my time rather better. I had few moments where I was really taken in by a film and completely lost track of what was going on around me. And I think that that's really a shame because that's what cinema should be, right? Something that where you're gone for two, three hours and, and then you think about the movie for several days. And there were only a handful of these moments this year at the cinema. Absolutely. I, th I think that's, it's really, I didn't really have this wow moment that often, but I was really like, okay, coming out of the cinema and saying, hey, this is a great movie. You absolutely have to see it. Go and watch it. This is a, a great one. I mean, we will talk about these later, I would say, but they were really far and few in between. So it was really a mediocre year, I would say. Yeah. So, so let's maybe talk about these, uh, the middle part of our, our list because there were obviously a few movies that had high expectations and then lived up mostly to their potential. So before maybe talking about our top three, we could talk about a few movies that worked well or well enough for us. 
And I think there's some there's going to be some overlap. So I'm going to mm. let you go first, and then I'm sure we're going to add to each other's list. So what were some some good movies that you saw this year? Uh, a good movie I saw this year, and I saw it didn't see it in the cinema, but later at home, and I somehow regretted that I didn't see it um, on the big screen. Was Elvis by Baz Luhrmann. So the biopic on Elvis Presley and in a typical Bess Lerman style, it's a very energetic, visual roller coaster ride of a movie. I think it's very close to the visual style of Moulin Rouge. You never really feel there is any cut. Everything is always running and rolling around um, sets and, and, and jump cuts and you have all these strong visuals, amazing music. Um, I thought it was interesting that there was also modern music playing into the more historical setting of the 50s, 1950s. So all, all this is a typical Lerman melange, I would say. And the standout for me there was really Austin Butler as the title character Elvis. I think he did a great, great performance. Definitely one of the best, better ones I've seen this year. Whereas I thought that Tom Hanks as the scheming manager, Colonel Parker, he was a bit... He didn't really convince me that much. I don't know if it was because of mm-hmm. Tom Hanks himself or if it was somehow the the, the, the face makeup, uh, where right. he, he looked a bit more fat, like in a fat suit. Yeah, this this was closer to an Austin Powers movie than, than I thought it should be. And <laughs> this performance. So I think this was always a bit... <clears throat> But Austin Butler was great. I thought the music was great, obviously, the visual styles. Mm. It was, and it was also a long movie. I think movies tend to get longer and longer. And if there is a movie under two hours, it's already a miracle. And also Elvis is a long <laughs> it movie. It doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't right? exist, no. <laughs> so also Elvis is a long movie, but um, it never felt that way. So this was also mm-hmm. a great plus for me. Yeah, absolutely. Elvis actually made it into my, my top three. So I'll get, give that away already. Totally agree with what you said. It was one of those movies, like I said before, that really uh, stayed with me uh, for a long time. I thought, especially how it Lerman manages after this flashy beginning um, with a lot of music, a lot of set changes and different moments that are mixed together in this kaleidoscopic way. He's then able to focus on the Las Vegas second part where there's this much more chamber piece drama, Elvis just in that location and somehow his life also switches then past the late 1960s into 1970s. And I thought... Had he stayed with the flashy style, maybe it would have been tiresome after a while. But I felt it then became much deeper and and Austin Butler was also able to shine more in those more intimate moments. So I thought it really had a a wide range of different sections and segments of the film that worked out really well and made for a very powerful um, impact that it had, not just musically, but also um, in terms of what I learned about Elvis Presley and and the tragedy of his life and uh, being controlled so much in his life. So definitely one of the big highlights. Mm-hmm. What else is there? You mentioned it already before, the menu, I think, is... You didn't like it that much. I thought it was fairly interesting, fairly entertaining, but I think it links together with another movie of this year, which is the Can Winner Triangle of Sadness, which also aims target at the 1%, the super wealthy rich, and tries to satirically demontage it in a way. I think in the menu, it's this setting of this super five-star, whatever, three-star Michelin restaurant on a remote island. And then there, the super wealthy and rich get, get their call out. And in Triangle of Sadness, the wealthy and rich are on this super yacht. And then there is this now infamous uh, vomit scene and then the ship gets uh, yeah, in, in, into trouble and then they strand on an island and then they have to survive there. And of course, they don't manage to do this. So I think it, it, it seemed to be a bit of a common theme to really satirically target the, the wealthy and the rich and the class and uh, these differences there. And I think the menu was more a dark comedy in a way, uh, had a very dark humor, but Similar to what you said before, I think the movie 
had more potential. I think it could have gone further. I think as soon as you know where the movie will go, where and it's quite early in the movie in that you you, you realize okay, that's the direction that the, the chef wants to go, right? He wants to mm-hmm. to kill the people or something like this. It's already visible in the trailer. And then you always expect a twist. You always expect okay, there must be something coming. There must be a twist, a turn. Mm-hmm. There must be something with Anya Taylor Joy's character. There must be a big revelation at the end, and it just doesn't come. It just Mm -hmm. goes as planned. It pans out. The only question you still have is like, okay, how will she escape from this island? And then she also does. And then the movie's over. And you're like, oh, okay, yeah, it was good. It was funny, (laughs) decent performances. But there could have been more. And the same also goes for Triangle of Sadness. This is also a very long movie again. It's again over two hours, two and a half hours. And you also, it, it, it pans out as you expect, you know. There's never really an innovative thought or like a really... They, as soon as they're on the island and that's already, uh, I don't know, one and a half hours, one and a half hours in the movie. And then, of course, the maid who used to be, yeah, the maid on the boat now can survive because she knows how to fish, she knows how to cook, she knows how to make a fire. So all the rich folks depend on her. And then there's this upturnal of the change of the society hierarchy and she becomes the powerful and can choose and boss everyone around. But that's all very obvious. And I think this critique on the society is very obvious and very bland. And for me, it didn't feel sharp enough. Interesting. I haven't seen Triangle of Sadness, so I'm very interested to hear that that perspective of it. Definitely felt that with um, the menu that the movie didn't really go anywhere from the, the basic premise that we already knew. I, I felt exactly that way sitting at the cinema. But thinking about the movies this year that um, I liked or themes that ran through movies, one of them besides uh, Outcasts and Superhumans was Islands. And I mm. felt the movie that did that much better and with so much more panache and fun and the satirical edge was another movie that I really liked, which is Glass Onion, which I think mm-hmm. is also among one of your favorites, I would, I would assume, having, having talked to you about it. And I thought there everything came together, the twists and turns, the group of people who come together, the super rich, again, in many cases, mm-hmm. and then did this combination of Let's do it as a whodunit. Let's do it as an old school Agatha Christie setup, but then really surprise people with modern twists and turns. Use double storytelling with a twist at the end where you go back half of the movie to see it from a different perspective. And I thought from the island movies that they were out this year, that was definitely a highlight for me. But I'll let you go uh, on about it a little bit more because I thought... Cast-wise, plot-wise, the, the fun, the originality, like you said, the, the innovative quality within the genre that it has already been very well defined. I thought there were a lot of fortes in that movie. Absolutely, yeah. I think Glass Onion is one of my top movies this year. I was really happy and lucky to have seen it on the big screen in the cinema in, in Milan because it was a Netflix bought the rights. So it's it's not a sequel, but it's like a second movie of this Knives Out world, if you like, from director Ryan Johnson. So in 2019, he made Knives Out, which was also this Agatha Christie style who done it with Daniel Craig as um, Benoit Blanc, the sleuth. And there was also a stellar cast with Jamie Lee Curtis and Christopher Plummer. Uh, our favorite, Anna de Armas, was in it. So there was uh, Chris Evans. So it was a huge success. And they made a second one, uh, which has a different cast now, apart from Daniel Craig's character. And as you said, it's set on an island and it stars Edward Norton, Janelle Monet, Kate Hudson, Catherine Hahn, Dave Bautista, amongst others. Yeah, I mean, I'm a sucker for whodunits, who for anything closely resembling to anything that ever <laughs> Agatha Christie could have or should have written. So it's great. I mean, as you say, it, it combines this satire of the wealthy and the rich and the beautiful, but it's also a very straight up murder mystery. And it does this with a lot of panache. It really, you can really tell that Ryan Johnson is a very gifted writer. He really knows how to set up a story, how to set up characters. And you have all these friends from a tech billionaire who may or may not closely resemble to people like Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg, played by Edward Norton. And he invites his closer friends every year to a Greek island. And there are two surprise guests. One is... Benoit Blanc, the detective, and one is his former 
associate and girlfriend, played by Janelle Monet. They're on this island and... Yeah, then soon murder mayhem ensues. It, it's what starts out as a, as a classical mystery becomes very multi-layered. There is a, a big twist in the middle also, which then puts things in completely different perspective. And what I liked most about this movie was that it was original. It was fun. You could also tell the people had fun doing it, I imagine. So there's really a, a, a great energy there. The cast, everyone gets to shine a little bit. I thought Kate Hudson was great. I haven't seen her in, in many movies for ages. So it was great to see her again. And I think she really channels her, her mother, Goldie Hawn, who was also a great comedian, um, really well. Uh, Dave Bautista is fun as this crazy, unloving uh, YouTuber. And of course, Janelle Monet and Daniel Craig, they give a great performance. Great cast, innovative screenplay. Uh, it was great fun to guess, to be surprised. So this was really a highlight for me this year. Totally agree with that from start to end. I think the only complaint I would have that I would have liked to see a few more star faces in there. Mm. Um, I thought that the, the cast was was good. And, you know, Bautista and Kate Hudson and definitely Janelle Monet and um, Daniel Craig are, were highlights. But I felt that would have been with, with I don't know, was like a budget thing or because they were producing it for, for Netflix. I, I felt big star names would have given that even a, a greater edge and a greater... Um, panache in the end we used that word now a couple of times but i felt it, it that with the means it had and with this setting on an island with that that the basic building with the glass onion i think there was so much memorable about it that i'm of course hoping that benoit blanc and daniel craig will have a, a longer life together and i think well, probably that the success that it has and the good reviews it gets will probably also trigger an, an another nice out mystery i hope but i will have to see what are highlights in the in the upcoming year what what else is coming i would add another movie um to the list of things that i liked not unexpectedly but i liked more with time a movie that stayed with me for a little bit longer after I had watched it. Actually watching it, I wasn't quite so sure I would, but then thinking about it. And that's the new Jordan Peele movie, Nope. Mm. Not sure if, you, if you've seen it. I haven't seen that one, no. It's Jordan Peele's third big budget movie. He, of course, surprised us with Get Out and Us over the past few years. Very innovative horror movies. And this time it was more in the realm of like science fiction, harking back to kind of 1950s science fiction movies. It has, again, Daniel Kaluuya in, in the main role, just like in Get Out. At the beginning, there is a kind of a strange mix of UFO movie. You're not quite sure what's going on. Daniel Kaluuya and his dad live on a, on a, on a ranch and horses start to get uneasy. There's something in the clouds above them. And then the whole movie somehow deals with this. There's something in the sky. You don't know quite quite what it is and then just over time you realize that's also kind of a super being a monstrous super being that has works according to certain rules and then Daniel Kaluuya's character finds out that actually he is able thanks to his horse training that they've done for Hollywood movies like his family kind of trains horses for big productions as an African-American family they're not allowed to be more uh, involved in movie production so kind of they live on the fringes of Hollywood and the movie is also about this fringe world, this show world, the showmanship that is not really white America, but somehow lives more in minority America. And that's kind of the, the, the meta comment on uh, that goes on in the movie. And then, of course, it's about him understanding the super being in the sky and being able to trick it with like old fashioned ways, for instance, old cameras instead of digital ones, because they are... Um, susceptible to the influence of electromagnetic destruction by this super being. And so it, it was very interesting then to think about how these, these layers work together. And I think he did it in Us, he did it in Get Out, where, where his movies would have like a second and a third layer. Mm -hmm. And I think I especially like the third layer of the movie, where he tells the story of uh, an Asian-American child star who was in a TV show where a chimpanzee went nuts and destroyed everything and killed a couple of the cast members. And he was a witness to that as a kid. And there is that horror element that creeps in and don't quite know how this character and his story, his traumatic uh, childhood experience then plays into the rest of the film. 
So very multi-layered, very interesting to think about and definitely a great addition, a great new dimension, you could say, for Jordan Peele. I'm really curious to see what else he's going to do because his movies have been continuously highly interesting, entertaining and the innovation aspect that we mentioned before was really strongly there. So highly recommend it. I haven't seen it on, on the big screen, but would have been a great film to see in IMAX, in the IMAX format that it was produced in. Right. What else is on the list? We're moving up. A movie I saw quite early in the year. It's a Norwegian movie, The Worst Person in the World. And it's from uh, Joachim Trier. And it's the story of this early 30s, youngish Norwegian lady, beautifully played by Renate Reinsve, who lives in Oslo. And she's drifting away. She's somehow realizing she's not 20 anymore. She's changing jobs constantly. She's changing her studies all the time. She's an older boyfriend who still supports her and she doesn't really know what to do with her life. And at a party, she meets a young guy and they start sort of a love affair. Yeah, the movie is basically about her life, about trying her trying to find out what she wants to do. And then also the, her relationships with these two men, her boyfriend and her lover in that sense. And I thought this was a, a beautiful movie, great, great acting performances, super touching end. And it's not just, uh, yeah, I think it was just a great script and great, great performances. I think the lead actress really is stellar. I think also last year she won the acting award in Cannes and things like that. So highly recommend it, even though maybe technically it's not a year 2022 movie, but still one I saw this year in the cinema and I really liked it. Haven't seen it either. It was on the list of movies I wanted to see, but I think it was at theaters only very, very briefly. Blink or you'll miss it. There's a, there's a number of them. My list is, is long of movies that I should have seen, but let's get to that later. Another one I saw also in the spring this year was The Northman. I think that was the first movie I saw in the cinema this year, I think in March, where I was really like, oh yeah, that's the one I want to see. And the trailer looked amazing. And director uh, Richard Eggers has a really made these dark, gloomy horror movies before. I think one was with Anya Taylor-Joy as well, The Witch, which was also this medieval, sinister horror movie. And The Northman is a much bigger production in that sense. It has also a star cast with Alexander Skarsgård and Nicole Kidman, Anya Taylor-Joy again. She's um, everywhere. <laughs> she's everywhere, that girl. It tells the story of a Viking prince whose father gets killed. Basically, it's Hamlet, right? So the father gets killed by the uncle and then the uncle takes his mother as a wife and he has to escape the village and the country. And he comes back as a super strong, super hunky, super muscular Viking on a revenge trip. And that's what he does. And in between, he falls in love with uh, Anya Taylor-Joy. Yeah, and then in the end, it's just bloodbath, just as in the old Shakespeare play. So, but the way the movie really is raw and rural and really forceful. And there are a lot of weird scenes also in it. There's this ritual with Willem Dafoe as a as a seer or as a as a magician. It's not a straight line Hollywood action epos, as you would think. There are always these little things inside which, which are a bit off, which are a bit weird, which make it more interesting. And I thought that was a really nice combination from this very unique vision of a director. And he has a Hollywood budget and he has the Hollywood actors and he still makes this nice mixture of, of his weird aesthetics and the weird noises and the, the strong, forceful violence he imbues. And at the same time, these are actors like Ethan Hawke and Nicole Kidman. And it's great fun. I enjoyed it tremendously because I thought it was... It's, yeah, it also didn't rely too much on CGI, which I also appreciated. It felt really real, that there are real horses running through Iceland and it's not just some green screen. So that was really good. I enjoyed that one if you're up for some Viking adventures. Mm -hmm. Interesting combination as well, two, two, two Nordic films that relied on like realism and uh, kind of became gritty because of the, of the realism and the kind of down, down to earthness. Exactly, a bit, a bit the antidote to all the, the superheroes of, of LA. Talking of the superheroes, I was surprised that two of the movies I really liked this year were superhero movies. I said before, 
Thor and Black Adam didn't make it. They were among my least favorite this year. But I surprisingly liked the new Batman movie. Mm, yes, yes. By Matt Reeves, uh, starring Robert Pattinson, of course, as the Dark Knight. And I, I just went to see it kind of as an afterthought because there was nothing else on that I seemed remotely <laughs> interested in. And then I really liked the dark grittiness, Colin Farrell as the Penguin. Um, Jeffrey Wright was great, Zoe Kravitz was great. It had exactly the qualities of a Batman movie that I expected. It was not more and it was not less. It was not CGI heavy, but it used it very cleverly. It told a, a gripping story and even though it was long, another movie that took, I don't know, somewhere between two and three hours, I was really super entertained and I thought, wow, this is the Batman movie I wanted to see years ago. And I must say, even though, of course, I appreciated what Christopher Nolan did to the Batman series, and I loved some of what Tim Burton did, the, the creativeness, but I thought, this, this is the Batman. This is how Batman should have been decades ago, and I never quite felt they did it right. And mm. strangely enough, this version was just what I expected from a Batman movie. So kudos to that. And of course, the other big one that I'm sure also looms largely on your list was the second Black Panther movie, Wakanda Forever. We've talked about it in, in quite some de detail in our last podcast, so mm -hmm. I don't think we need to go into, you know, retelling of, of plot and so on, but I'm just, uh, before I'll give you a chance to say what you felt about it, like, I thought if you do a big CGI movie, if you do a sequel, if you have to follow up a very successful and innovative entry into the Marvel Universe, then that's the way to go. You, you take some elements that worked in the first one, obviously with Chadwick Boseman's passing, they couldn't quite go back to that, but they, they really cleverly followed up on his passing as a character as well. And I thought it was just beautifully done, effects and all, music and all. I thought it, it also took the franchise, if you can call it that way already, into new directions that I'll be interested to, to follow up on. And it had a great, almost all-female cast that was extremely strong and, and, and convincing. So definitely superhero movie number one for me of 2022, if not altogether. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree that these two are the better superhero movies of the year, definitely. I think Wakanda was the best Marvel movie of the year. And The Batman I also really liked. I was also... I had zero expectations. I think I saw the trailer once and never really thought about it. And similar to you, I went to see it and I was like, oh my God, this was good. This was really great. <laughs> also because it's it's more like a, like, a, like a crime movie. It's not necessarily this boring origin story of how he became the Batman and how his parents were killed or something like this. He's already this, this emo boy, weirdo. Yeah, I think the, 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 it was interesting. It was... It was as you say, it really felt right. I think the depiction felt right. I think the villains felt right. I think Catwoman was right. And it, it, it almost felt like David Fincher-esque to me. Right. Very gloomy, very crime procedural. And, and Batman is in there and he's also trying to support the police. But then he's seen a bit as a, as a weirdo because he has his cape on. So that was, that was great. That was a good one. Definitely my best superhero movie of the year definitely so i think these two were really good ones in that sense and if i might add like a pair of of movies because i said you know islands superhumans and so on but i think two lgbtq plus comedies you could also call them gay comedies i guess in the old-fashioned way bros <laughs> and fire island two very different takes on gay comedies bros we also talked about in our mm -hmm. last podcast and we said how it, to a large extent, is a successful kind of Woody Allen-esque attempt at gay comedy written by Billy Eichner and also starring him. Even though it had weaknesses and it didn't quite work out and not all the jokes landed as well as they should have. And even though Universal maybe didn't quite know what it was doing with its first mainstream uh, gay comedy rom-com i think it, it was it was admirable the effort was admirable the writing was admirable and a lot it had a lot going for it and i think it should have been more successful than it actually was so i put it on my list because i felt it it worked out really well in that sense maybe as a first attempt of this big studio gay rom-com so let's have more of that but then shortly after i actually had a chance to see 
the Hulu production Fire Island, which, as it says, is another island story and works out really well this year with all the island stories that we've already talked about. It has an Asian-American cast. It's also written by the same actor who was also the, the, the main actor, uh, Joel Kim Booster, and it's uh, directed by Andrew Ahn. And what it does, surprisingly, is set its kind of dating rom-com love story on Fire Island. So this this famous place for parties and vacations, but it sets it in a kind of Jane Austen-esque kind of way. Mm. It starts with the, with the first line from uh, Pride and Prejudice and then has these hints to Jane Austen without actually trying to be the same storyline, still talking about class within the gay community. So the main storyline actually deals with uh, Joel Kim Booster's character who goes to a fire island with his friends. They happen to have a house there, but just by chance, this house is now in danger of being lost to their circle of friends. They're all Asian American. And then during one of the parties, they get to know a group of rich white American boys and they kind of there's, there's, they have crushes on each other. But then there's the, the issue of class that gets in between and this house that is in danger of being lost. And the rom-com then turns more multi-layered because it's not just about will this guy get that guy and, and uh, what's the, what are the trials and tribulations on the way there, which also, of course, has some echoes in, in Jane Austen again, kind of this matchmaking and who fits with whom and who is the matchmaker and tries to influence that procedure. But it, it then also has actually a very beautiful setting, uses some classical remix music. So without being truly Jane Austen-esque, it actually does something similar in a very modern, unexpected context. And I thought this was beautifully done and I had such a good time watching it. And I thought a couple of times this is what bros should have been, mm -hmm. in a way. Have maybe an extra layer, not just try to be straight out comedy and, and copy so much from other rom-coms, but actually dare to be very genuine and fresh and try something without losing sight of actually having a second and third level to what, what's actually going on in, in the foreground. Great island story, my favorite island of the year, Fire Island. Very good. I haven't seen that one, but the way you presented the movie now sounds very, very interesting. Definitely put it on the ever-growing watch list. Our top list of the year, I think, is now etching towards the top positions. Exactly. So I'm going to ask you what, what is either in top position if there is only one or what what else is there towards the top of your list i mean i have two movies i still want to mention very close on the list is a little german austrian movie from a female director marie kreuzer korsic it's the story of empress elizabeth of austria and hungary famously known as sisi played by vicky creeps it's a story that sisi is now getting close to her 40th birthday she's suffering from being this fashion icon beauty icon and she starts to realize that her attributes are fading away so her beauty is fading away she's getting older she's estranged from her husband the emperor And she's living this very isolated life between horseback riding and, and dieting and exercising and being with the kids and also trying to navigate her life. But she's very unhappy. So it's, it's more of a, a woman in a crisis and she tries to break out from this. And the movie is really interestingly done because it shows the way it's staged. You would, you would expect this very lush and opulent costume drama with a lot of excess but it's it's not like that there are historic costumes but the movie always breaks it with settings that feel a bit modern so at one time they're on a on a ship that is clearly a modern time ship or also the the hallways where the servants go through it's all with concrete and there is a telephone hanging a modern one so it almost has this brechtian like breaking up of, a, of an illusion. Yeah, it, it's breaking out the illusion that this is a pure historical period piece. So also one of the, of the handmaids of, of the empress wears modern glasses and things like that. So there are all these tiny little things which make the movie very, yeah, very contemporary. It doesn't feel old school period drama. It's very modern. And also the portrayal of this woman feels very actual and very 
very close, I think. So it was a, a stunning performance by Vicky Creeps. I think she's she's been sneaking through a lot of movies in the past few years, most famously in The Phantom Threat with uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. And here again, she, she really gets to shine. And I think, I hope we see much more from her in the future because she's really a great talent of the European and international cinema. And uh, Corsage is really, a, it's good. It's a small, intimate movie, but has a really, this one, as you said earlier, this was one of the movies that stayed with me for quite some days and weeks. So as we're etching towards our list, I think there are two movies we still need to talk about. <laughs> I have a movie on the top of my list that you're going to hate me for, because we had some of the, the biggest disagreements about the movie I, I ever remember. But it, it, I'm just going to say, first and foremost, it, it did something with me. It was something that I, I, I felt I could not control. I went to see a movie and it's Luca Cattanino's new film, Bones and All. Timothée Chalamet is in it again after Call Him By Your Name, the second collaboration they, they did. And then also Taylor Russell, a young um, actress. And those two are a, a couple or become a couple but they're tied by something very unusual. They're both so-called eaters, so cannibals. And so this is a horror movie that also stars Mark Rylance in a third very important role of another eater that tracks Taylor Russell's character throughout the movie. I, I went to see it with not really big expectations. I was just very curious what those two, Chalamet and Guadagnino, would, would come up with because everyone has been waiting for a, a sequel to Call Him By Your Name and somehow that didn't come through. But um, with Army Hammer being involved in a controversy around cannibalism, I thought it was interesting that they went for <laughs> a cannibal story. I had not really liked his last movie, the remake of uh, Dario Argento's Suspiria at all. So I was also curious to see whether he'd pull off another movie that I would like. And I... <laughs> I really, really loved it, um, if you can love a movie like that, because there is the upfront crassness of the cannibalism that starts off very early in the movie and comes as a, like a shocking surprise. There were shocking moments of, of graphic violence, at least you thought there would be more and more of, of, of these, and you think for a while you can't watch this movie. The first, I think, 15, 20 minutes, I kind of wanted to leave and didn't want to stay. And then it turned into this mix of a 1980s road movie that has the horror elements that remind you a little bit of the Italian directors of the 1970s, like Bob and Argento. And at the same time, it tells the finding out story, the coming of age story of this girl that Taylor Russell plays. She listens to a tape on the way throughout all these random and kind of similar looking states in the US. It has this rhythm of coming from place to place randomly. Um, it has 1980s references, just like Call Him By Your Name had, but it does these in a much more bland American way. It feels a lot like you really get to know this middle of the road America of that time. And slowly but surely she gets to know the story of her childhood, how she always was an eater and how her father couldn't stay with her. And of course, parallel to that, there's the tracking down of Mark Rylance finding out where she is so it's kind of a she's in it on a chase at the same time it's also the the love story between her and, and Timothée Chalamet and how this proceeds and if they will be able to turn away from their outcast being and, and become something more of a you know stable relationship if that's even possible for them finally it's also her finding her mother finding her beginnings in a way and she finds her eventually, but that, that scene doesn't bring closure, but just more um, heartache to her at first. So I was very strangely taken in by this movie and, and completely lost myself in that, the rhythm, the road, the finding out, the, the unlayering of, of her, her backstory. And this, this, this mood, this gloomy, horrific mood of the 1980s. And yeah, please hate me for it as much as you want. I, I couldn't control it. I just walked out and it, the movie stayed with me for many days. The movie that stayed most with me of the entire year. And yeah, can't help it. Bones and all. Bones and all, it took you in. I have to say, and now here comes the rant of the year. No, this was, this was really, honestly, this was one of the worst movies of the year I've seen in the cinema. And one of the most unpleasant experiences in the cinema <laughs> I had for a very, very long time. Because I think the movie starts off 
interesting, I would say, because it, it set up this story of this cannibal girl uh, who at this slumber party bites off the finger of one of her <laughs> schoolmates and and you you get the sense that okay something's wrong with her and her father can't really control her anymore and he abandons her and she goes on this quest and then she meets Mark Rylance's character and you think like oh okay this is gonna be like sort of this horror movie and it's gonna be this ugh yeah but then I'm sorry I have to say as soon I think as Timothy Chalamet comes into the game it really goes into nowhere. I think the movie is tonally very off because there are these crass scenes with really splatter. It's like any cheap-ass splatter would be proud of such violent scenes. And then, as you mentioned, it goes up again into this dreamy Terence Malick, Badlands landscapes and love, love lore and teenagers driving around. And then again, some, 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 spl and I think also this whole mythology around these eaters and that apparently it's inherited because the father and the mother and the people before you were already cannibals is all very confusing. It feels like this, it's sort of a twilight cannibal story <laughs> where they running away and then, but they can't help who they are and they need to feed and they need to, Kill. And I also think the the chemistry between the two leads didn't work for me at all. I think she was really good, Taylor Russell. I think she gave a, she she's carrying that movie on her shoulders. But for me personally, Timothy Chalamet was completely miscast. I didn't believe for a second he was this tough guy who's a bit yo. I'm a I'm on the run. I, I there's this mystery how his father died and he's uh, going, going, going back home and then he's leaving again and he's on the road and street smart and things like that. And he's too, I, I didn't believe a second of what his character was supposed to be by the way he portrays it. And then I think it was also just boring. It was really, and then it, it, again, I mean, we talk now many movies that are two, two and a half hours long. This one is as well. And I think it's just the story drags on and then it goes on and this mystery around the mother and, and then she finds the mother. And, and somehow for me, this was like the closure of that story arc. But then the movie goes on for another 45 minutes, half an hour and just wondering why and it drags on and in between some splatter again. And <laughs> I, I, I think, no, it was really, I did not enjoy this at all. I think it was... Clearly. It was, no, clearly I didn't. It was, it's really, really on the low, low of my list. And I think it was just tonally off. It was boring. It was, I, I, I also, there was no meta level to it somehow. It was very, there was, I, also that it plays in the 80s. It doesn't matter. It could have been yesterday. I think there's no social commentary in it. Also, I thought it would be some sort of, maybe these cannibals represent some sort of minority or, or a queer link to anything but it also it's not nothing comes out of that either so i think it's it it stays very bland the love story is very bland they're just crass brutal scenes this melange of things i think it didn't come together and i also have to say final words i just also believe luca guadagnino is not my director because i haven't really seen a movie i truly truly liked mm -hmm. from him I thought The Bigger Splash was terribly boring. Me too. Uh, Suspiria could have been better. I think Call Me <laughs> By Your Name had its merits, but overall I didn't really buy into the love story. So I think... He's I think not your guy. Him. Let's, He's let's, not let's, my guy. Let's, let's finish with this. Clean and simple. Let's put it this. I don't want to kill your favorite movie of the year, no, but and that's I, what I, taste said, is for, right? To you, you know, I, I can't really um, disagree with your perception because I can totally see where that is coming from. I just had a very different experience. And for me, all these things worked out beautifully and came together. I think the whole mold of the movie, including the, the music and the build-up and the pace that I didn't think were boring at all, but you really had me... I don't know, it, 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 that was kind of a... It was magnetic for me to watch this, mm. surprisingly. And I think that, that's probably learning. It's like chemistry almost. The elements in a movie that come together aesthetically and then it you can just be taken in by them or put off. And I think that movie does a lot to put you off, obviously, and, and as you said, also um, personally, depending on how you watch it. But it just didn't mm -hmm. do that for me, and uh, I can't. I can't help it. You know, it's one of those movies that I just really, really liked seeing it and thinking about it after. Exactly. So, Andy. So, what 
top of your list then? Because there must be a number one. What, what is it? My number one is Jurassic World. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it, it, it's, of course, a movie I saw. I think it also came out early in the year, relatively. It was a, it's a small independent movie and it garnered a huge hype, a huge cult following. I think it grew. It was really growing um, within many people's hearts and that this is a great movie and everyone should watch it. And I was also one of those who told everyone to go and see it because it is a great movie. Of course, it's everything, everywhere, all at once. Of course. Um, of course, starring Michelle Yeoh. I think it's a movie you have to see, you have to experience because it's hard to explain what it's really about. It's about an immigrant Asian woman living in the US, working with her husband in a small laundry shop and they have a teenage daughter and she needs to file in taxes. So that's basically the basic premise. She goes to the tax bureau and then suddenly start things start to unravel, things she doesn't understand. And suddenly she's in an adventure of multiverses, different parallel verses where different versions of herself exist. And she can access these different uh, universes, multiverses with different actions. And she has to find the mystery that, that goes on in all these multiverses and threatens all these existences. It's a hell of a ride of a movie, I would say. I think you're watching this movie and you're, I mean, that's, at least that's how I felt. It was really like, what is going on here? And who <laughs> thought of that? And why? And oh my God. And what is this? And... It's amazing. It's just, I think, one of the rare movies which are really innovative, surprising, engaging, entertaining. I loved it. I think I'll, I'll have to watch it again. And Michelle Yeoh is amazing. I'm so happy she, at this stage in her career where she was really constantly doing movies, she, she delivered this great performance. And it's, it's, it's clear for me, it's the best movie of the year. Oh, yes. I can totally see that. Why this made top spot on your list it was amazing you recommended it and i watched it it was really truly this innovative unexpected all over the place film that you just have to enjoy for my taste you know i, I would have to mm -hmm. see it again it was like far too much but i think it makes sense that's i think what the movie attempts to do so i think i appreciated it for all the things that it did all at once and that the worlds it created and opened up but i think from my filmic understanding i think i'd have to go back to it to understand and appreciate all the different layers that were going on all the things that it was telling at the same time so it was mm -hmm. mostly admiration even maybe if on an emotional level it didn't do much with me so i feel i'd have to go through it again and, and appreciate it for all that it does but yeah totally agree one of the top movies of the year but we've wrapped up a, a long list of, of movies that we talked about that we still appreciated somewhat. I think especially in the latter section of our discussion, I think there were truly a few great ones. But looking at the upcoming year, is there already a film or are there already several films that you look forward to? Yeah, I mean, I think the starting a new movie year, you always know of the biggies, I would say, the big tentpole Hollywood blockbusters that are announced way in advance and you already know, okay, yeah, that's coming. And I think out of those, it's clearly, for me personally, the new Indiana Jones movie, which I think a few weeks back released a new trailer and I think it looks quite promising. Of course, with Harrison Ford back in the saddle, um, there's also Antonio Banderas in it and Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Mats Mikkelsen. Mm, so I great. think great cast, also the director, uh, James Mangold did a few good movies, also had with Logan, quite a good superhero movie um, with Hugh Jackman as Wolverine and like the final chapter of that character. So I think that's looks quite promising. I'm lo really looking forward to that. I think also the new Mission Impossible, is always a great spectacle to to behold <laughs> in the cinema. So I think that will be another one I will definitely go and see and watch. Not quite sure what to make out of the Barbie movie <laughs> that has been <laughs> that has garnered quite some hype. Um, 
in the internet stratosphere uh, with some pictures of um, Ryan Gosling mm. as Ken and Margot Robbie as Barbie in these crazy outlandish pink outfits. But I think Greta Gerwig, I think I trust her as a director, as a movie maker, that this could be something quite interesting. So the trailer doesn't give away too much. So that's a bit of a surprise egg, <laughs> I would say. What about you? Any Anything already you're looking for? I shared uh, the ones that you mentioned, uh, the sequels, the great blockbuster sequels, Indiana Jones, Mission Impossible. Obviously Dune, the second part coming out, I think mm. in November, way back in the year. Not too sure about Barbie. I guess the trailer effect uh, is great, but will the movie be? Not so sure. I'm also kind of looking forward to Ridley Scott's take on Napoleon. Truecken Phoenix oh, is going to yeah. play the big French military leader of the uh, 19th century. And um, I'm looking forward to what he does with this bit of history. He's tackled so many myths, legends, and historical bits. And I think just... M- more more uh, quickly, we're going to see uh, a movie that stars Kate Blanchett called Tar. She plays a, a conductor, uh, in a German conductor, and she is very hyped for this role. I've seen just bits and pieces of this teaser trailer that doesn't give away too much. It seems quite dark mm-hmm. and intricate and, and mysterious, and her role or her acting was called monumental in in a number of reviews so and i think it's it's going to come out it was on a number of best of 2022 lists already because the us and the uk already had it and i think here it starts in january so it's definitely a first highlight coming out um and um, i hope that this contrary to 2022 will be a year of true highlights that we can unashamedly call great movies without hesitation without uh well, hopefully with some controversy as well, but uh, coming back maybe in a year's time that we can call 2023 a slightly more highlight year than 2022, where we seem to have to look for them a little bit more. So that's my hope for the new year. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I'm sure we will have Certainly. lots to talk about also in the new year uh, here on our dearest podcast. So yeah, please, if you enjoyed this episode, let us know what you thought of our lists. If you have anything else to add, um, please follow us also on Instagram. See and hear you again in the new year with lots of new movies when we are again ready for close up. The universe he speaks of senseless things. is so much bigger you than you realize. I could be. I just want to share with you. Remember our mission concerning the fate of every single world of our infinite multiverse. There is no way I am the Evelyn you are looking for. Every rejection, every disappointment has led you here to this moment. Don't let anything distract you from it.